Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Issam Nassar. Issam Nassar is professor of history at Illinois State University, but currently is at the Doha Institute as director of the graduate studies. Issam published a number of works related to photography in Palestine, but today we're going to talk about his personal life in Jerusalem. And later, we're going to talk about uh, Wasif Juaria, as together with Salim Tamari, he edited the diary and memoirs of this very important character for the history of Jerusalem. Issam, welcome. Thank you. Issam, the first question, the question that I ask all my guests is, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with a city? Uh, it's a rather uh, kind of uh, long connection in some sense that predates my existence. As I come from a family on my mother's side who, have, who were Jerusalemites for centuries. I mean, I cannot tell when was exactly the point in which they migrated from Crete to, to Jerusalem but certainly a few hundred years before. And uh, my father, who is, comes from a village near the family, also migrated to Jerusalem early 20th century. So in a sense, my family were Jerusalemites who had, uh, you know, businesses and moved gradually up into the economic ladder that they moved outside of the old city, despite the fact that the business was in the old city. Uh, so there is that package uh, that comes with uh, memories that I acquired from my family about the cousin in al and the house in, uh, 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 now I forgot the name, uh, Mosrara, 
the, the part that was no man's land where our house used to be. So there was that, all that uh, lingo and, and, and talk about things that were part of my, my growing up without even realizing what it meant at the time. Uh, personally, I was born in Jerusalem, and being the son of a, a father who uh, had uh, his business, his store in Jerusalem, uh, although uh, from 1960 we moved to Ramallah, but uh, every day after school I would just go to Jerusalem to the store to help my father in the store until the late hours of the evening, and then when I grow up, it will be, you know, where I would hang out and spend the night sometimes. So somehow Jerusalem was in and out of my growing up. Of course, that's one element. The other element is I decided to study Jerusalem, mainly because of particular fascination with the uh, smells and sounds uh, of, of the city somehow. I think that's probably was more, more, it's so I spent uh, decades of my life now researching various aspects of, of the modern history of Jerusalem, particularly. Fascinating. You just mentioned smells and sounds. Your work uh, is very much about photography. So instead of talking about photography now, I really want to explore this uh, idea of looking at smells and sounds. Are there unique smells and sounds in Jerusalem? Well, yes, I think so. And I think, you know, each place has its own smells and sounds. But Jerusalem, if you look at, uh, to me, there were like three kinds of smells. And this is, uh, I am talking about me, the child. I, there is the smells of the old city. And the smells of the old city are always related to either spices or, or frankincense or, uh, or, you know, uh, you know, these kind of oriental, I suppose, and I use it loosely here, uh, uh, smells of, of the place. And the sounds were always sounds of uh, a mixture of the uh, muazzin and the bells, uh, the towers, or bell towers, uh, you know, uh, vendors screaming, selling uh, nana mint or, uh, or tomatoes or something else. So there is that particular uh, old city smell that I'm always associated myself with. But then there was the, the, the newer city or the outside of the city, the East Jerusalem smells, which were rather different. They had no spices. They had no, you know, the occasional uh, smell of, of the kak, uh, you know, the Jerusalem bread, which is mostly I associated with the Musrara more than the old city somehow. And then there's the West Jerusalem, the Israeli section, or Israeli-occupied section in 1948, which in the beginning as a child, I used to have this smell of cinnamon, which is usually part of what they call sort of like buns that uh, we were not familiar with in the East at the time. Uh, like, uh, you know, kind of, uh, I, I don't know if it's Eastern European or you know, the kind of smells you smell in a mall nowadays when you go to the food court. So there, there's always that thing. Uh, and of course, the, the sounds there were always about uh, cars, lots of cars, moving cars and uh, traffic lights and things like this, which in my uh, uh, 
young age in Jerusalem, they were limited to the western part of the city uh, and not to the eastern part, or they did not exist in Ramallah or in, in any other areas. I never thought about the city in, in terms of sounds and smell. Uh, with a previous guest, we were discussing the fact that Jerusalem has also colors. And uh, this guest mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, when you look at uh, people um, walking around Jerusalem, you often have this perception that is uh, dark in a sense that uh, you have uh, religious communities where the Jewish, Muslim or Christians that tend to wear dark colors. Um, and, you know, in certain periods of the year, they do represent some sort of a majority of, of the people walking around the city. And, and then I made the, the, the point that it's in stark contrast with the white stone of Jerusalem. Um, do you see the city through colors too? Do you have uh, particular colors associated with the city of Jerusalem? Not as much. I mean, I have, of course, some visual imagination, but not uh, colors as much. But I see your point about the uh you know blackness uh, related to uh, religious people in some sense but to me they are uh, part of the scene but but uh, when i think of the old city particularly uh, the, the colors of the dresses of the falahi woman the peasant woman who came from the countryside to sell uh, you know, I remember these things, or fresh mint, green, or or vegetables, and I'm thinking here mostly of the Damascus Gate area. Uh, so I think there are these other contrasting colors. And also from my childhood, uh, when I was young, uh, say in the 70s, uh, Jerusalem was, or the old city particularly, was full of tourists. And the tourists in back in those days tend to be, I'm not tend, but they, they, they were also not just religious pilgrims, but they were also, uh, you know, young men and women who came on vacation from, say, Germany or, or Italy or something like this, just to hang out. They visited the old city and they went to the Dead Sea and other areas. So, and back in the days, I remember there were a few... Uh, uh, kind of taverns in the old city where these foreigners would hang out. So the the scene, I, w I have to say, in my childhood was more secular, if that's the right word to use here, than when now when I visit the city and I only see, uh, you know, Jews in uh, ultra-Orthodox or Orthodox Jews in black or particular attire or Muslim women in uh, uh, in Jalabiya, uh, you know, in Islamic dress, or, or Muslim men who are dressed as if they just came from 7th century Arabia. And I don't know how, I mean, I don't know what they dressed in 7th century Arabia, but that, that's the impression you get. Now, back in the days, it was a lot different, I think. And maybe the, you know, trend towards more religiosity, maybe the conflicts in the last two, 20 years, uh, uh, that kind of uh, made Jerusalem unimportant for young uh, Europeans traveling to the city? I don't know. Perhaps you have been influenced by the fact that uh, uh, your work is very much about a Jerusalem in black and white. And um, I, I was wondering how, you know, your work uh, looking at uh, 
pictures and photography influence also your view of the city? How did you negotiate that black and white that you have studied with your upbringing in the Jerusalem of the 1970s? Yeah. Uh, well, let me think for a minute. I think to me somehow working with, with old photographs, you know, 19th and early 20th century photographs that tend to be black and white or yellow and brown somehow, uh, that's uh, somehow uh, made me uh, maybe see color as something that is added or, or artificial in some sense to the sense of authenticity. Now, I'm not saying that that is the case, but I'm saying that's my feeling. So in other words, when I go to Jerusalem, I look at stones or at stores and I almost see them. If, if they have some historical significance, I, I, I see them in the eye of my mind uh, in black and white. Uh, but if they were just, you know, like a new Israeli settlement that was just implanted outside in some area, that's certainly in color. And color to me seemed to me, in my mind again, this is not material reality, to be associated with fakeness, as if, uh, you know, something added that is a burden on the, on the authenticity of the city. Of course, I'm reflecting personally here. This is not a, a, you know, I am not describing a material reality in some sense. But yes, in, in terms of what is uh, kind of, in my mind, more authentic that belongs to earlier times, I, I immediately almost see it in black and white. And maybe the, my, my example before about the young uh, hippies uh, in the 1970s visiting the city, they will always seem like to be out of place, outsiders, and they were colorful. So maybe there's also some sort of unconscious layer here of seeing uh, color again as something that just superimposed on the city or just came to the city somehow. You mainly worked on uh, sort of European photography of Jerusalem, but you also looked at uh, uh, Palestinian photography, local photographers who engage with uh, business, but also with the arts of photography. If you were to sum up, what is the Jerusalem encapsulated in photography? Would it be just uh, buildings, only places, over something more, something that perhaps at a superficial level we cannot see? Well, the Jerusalem encapsulated in, in early photography, say 19th and uh, even perhaps into well into the uh, British Mandate period, first decades of the 20th century, uh, was largely about an imaginary place that kind of does not exist on its own. It's there. It was more about buildings and about locations that are associated either with the Bible or with some particular imagination or, or another that is largely religious. Uh, and in that sense, even if people or, or representatives of the society or of the economy appear in the picture, uh, they were incidental because what mattered more is the Dome of the Rock or the Holy Sepulchre or, or whatever it is, not the people who just happen to 
kind of jump into the picture. That is uh, the uh, historical kind of uh, mostly European, but also local Palestinian, uh, early Palestinian photographers who were catering to the, uh, to the tourist market. They were also producing these kind of biblical Im uh, uh, images. Uh, now, when we come to closer, particularly to 1948, I want to say, although the local photography goes, you know, in, into a, from probably 1880s, uh, maybe even a bit earlier, uh, we start to see photos that are more about events and people. And I'm talking about here professional photographers. I'm not talking about the personal albums. I, I can talk about that if you like more. Uh, you start to see, you know, defenders of Jerusalem or surrender of Jerusalem or, or exchange of prisoners. And you, all of a sudden you start to see, which is also not Jerusalem, it's really war, but it's happening in Jerusalem. It's really grand politics through war that's happening in Jerusalem. The alternative, to that is what you see in, in private hands, is like the personal and family photographs. And that is where you see these intimate moments, people performing to the camera, uh, sitting leisurely around dinner table, or uh, you know, posing in front of one of the gates of the old city or the other, or in front of their new house in in Talbi or Baqa or some uh, other place. So, you know, you cannot just say that photography is about one thing. But I think there are dominant themes in each kind of category, and ironically, they don't intersect much. You know, it's like the European uh, kind of Orientalist biblical photography stands on its own. And uh, uh, war photography and conflict photography stands on its own. And then there is that element that's always missing, which is the personal uh, Jerusalem, the social Jerusalem, the economic Jerusalem. You made me think about uh, something that uh, the previous guest uh, was talking about, uh, particularly about uh, you know, the, the fact that these photographies uh, didn't talk to each other, they were different, uh, you know, and, and, and at the same time capturing the same environment. And it made me think about um, uh, Salim Tamari, who talked about his childhood too, and he talked about uh, particularly the period after 67, which was uh, uh, dramatic, tragic, but at the same time borderless people moved uh, and got to know the other part, uh, which nowadays is obviously very different given the, the, the walls. Now, that doesn't mean that there were no borders. There were borders, obviously. They were just invisible. Uh, I, I was wondering if also photography, you think, has changed given the fact that people had the possibility to see different parts of Jerusalem. And if so, if it somehow helped, understanding each other, or even creating more borders later? Well, I guess that takes us into post-67 photography. Uh, I am not sure it changed much. I think, uh, uh, you know, even though the city was so-called unified or colonized by one side now, rather than by multiple sides, uh, 
it's still, you know, each community, uh, the colonized and the colonizers or the, 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 the Israelis and the Palestinians or, or the East Jerusalem and the West Jerusalem, each community kind of function differently. And I am, uh, you know, I've seen works of, of Israeli photographers who took pictures in the old city or of the bread seller in, in Jerusalem, the Arab bread seller in Jerusalem or whatever it is. But in my eyes, these images seemed as if they were going somewhere else and capturing something exotic rather than part of their own city. And I think the Palestinian photographers focused largely on the old city on, on, and particularly on religious symbols and perhaps on some cultural activities here and there, but mostly uh, remained functioning within sort of a Palestinian sphere or an Arab or Islamic Christian sphere. So somehow I don't think, you know, the uh, photography helped uh, 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 the interaction or, or bringing together Jerusalem rather uh, separated it even more. While we, while the Israeli policies were trying to bring it together, unify it, I think the uh, everyday imagination produced uh, or emphasized by photography and film uh, was functioning differently, I think. Certainly film is another area at some point I, I need to explore for the podcast. I think there's a there's a lot of material out there, and yet it's interesting. There are not real movies about Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is part of many movies uh, yeah. in different ways. So I guess there are also difficulties in how to portray Jerusalem within, uh, um, like, not a stationary picture, but, uh, again, a movie picture, a motion picture, something that is moving. Uh, the complexities of crossing borders and, uh, again, feeling part of a different area, depending who you are, and depending where you move from and to. So I leave it there. I just want to move to, from photography, talking about uh, another piece of your work, but uh, this has to deal with an individual which is going to be at the center of a second part of the interview. With Salim Tamari, you edited the diary and memoir of a, a Jerusalemite who was unknown to many, to myself indeed, the uh, first publication in Arabic and the translation into English has changed not just the academic world and the academic perception and, you know, writing the history of Jerusalem in the early 20th century, but I think this has also become a popular narrative and people are now referring to the life and times of Wasif Juwaria. Who was Wasif? Uh, Wasif was a Jerusalemite per excellence, I would say. He was born in the old city of Jerusalem in the Saudiya neighborhood uh, or quarter of the city, which is now generally speaking described as part of the Muslim quarter. A Christian Orthodox Palestinian born in the what is now we think of as Muslim, but it's, in fact, it's it, these were just names given by the British mandate variety of reasons we're not going to get into. Uh, and Wasif uh, was born in late 19th century, uh, was a young man uh, in the first, you know, teenager, uh, boy, teenager, then a young man uh, into World War One, where he was uh, 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 conscripted into the Ottoman army. 
and served with the Ottoman Navy in the Dead Sea, uh, which uh, was not, it was really a small lake within the Ottoman territories, but uh, apparently there were lots of smuggling of uh, wheat, uh, food, and things like this in, in times of war. So through that area, so he was stationed there. What made him special is a number of things, but one of them is he is known as, a, a, I'll use the term musician loosely, although now everyone talks about Wasif being the great musician. Uh, he wasn't. Wasif was a oud player, a, a, someone who played music and sang and was uh, and sang in religious ceremonies, in uh, in weddings, and you know was part of the social life in that sense. He was not part of the the more elitist um, music scene. He did not necessarily write music. He has a song or two that he composed, but generally speaking, the kind of music he produced uh, made him. Uh, a household name in every wedding party or Ramadan festivities or or a Christmas festivity or Purim festivity in Ottoman and later on in uh, in British Mandate Jerusalem. So in some sense, he was uh, part of the nightlife of Jerusalem, if that is the right term to use. And in that sense, he interacted with people from many faiths, from many backgrounds, and because of his particular uh, uh, field of music, he also uh, uh, interacted uh, or had contacts with visiting artists who came from Aleppo in Syria or from Lebanon or from Egypt uh, to perform in Palestine. So he was also connected with that scene. Uh, so this is an element where he, as a storyteller, as someone who uh, wrote his memoirs. His memoirs are rich about the cultural life and the artistic life in the city. On the other hand, he also worked as a municipal employee in the Department of Land Registration. And although that's not an important part of his memoirs, but there he has connections and interaction with superiors who were mostly British. The same way he also had connections with the municipal uh, uh, mayors of Jerusalem, even before when he was young, he was, uh, his father was close friend of the mayor of Jerusalem, two mayors of Jerusalem, uh, Salim al-Husseini and uh, Hussein al-Husseini. So he is kind of connected with the sort of milieu of, of the city in some sense. So his memoirs are rich in that sense. They, they take you into a place that only exists in our imagination, where Jews, Christians, and Muslims, or what we call now Israelis and Arabs, or Israelis and Palestinians, were, were part of the same community, at least in, in, in late Ottoman period, and uh, you know were engaged in, in activities that is similar, you know, religious activities. They wanted someone to play music. They shared in the music scene, in the food scene. So, you know, his memoirs also, uh, is rich in terms of anecdotes about particular individuals in the city, kind of jokers, storytellers, 
artists, even, uh, you know, people who, who were arrested for some reason or another, or, or the drunken people at night, or, you know, there are all these things that you don't usually find in, even the other memoirs about Jerusalem are all about war, or, or this is how it was, and we lost it, and, uh, you know, it's either nostalgia or description of greater events. But this is indeed something from within the society, from underneath. You know, that's what makes him very special, I think. We are going to take a short break. Please remember to join our Facebook page and also join our Twitter and Instagram accounts at Jerusalem Unplugged. If you have a story that you want to share about Jerusalem or you want me to interview someone, please get in touch and I'll be very happy to follow you. And remember, enjoy, share, subscribe. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. There's so many aspects uh, to talk about Wasif. And uh, let's start with music because you, you talked about the fact that uh, He was a nude player, uh, hard to call him a musician, and I guess I would agree with that. But yet music is really part of the memoirs. Uh, there are episodes when he, he talks about uh, listening to the radio for the first time in Jerusalem. Um, and I was just wondering if, it can, if you can elaborate a little bit more about his uh, sort of a musical uh, performances and career and how this matched with life in Jerusalem, given the fact that, as you mentioned, from many other documents, diaries, memoirs, but also 
official documents, you always get the sense that Jerusalem was this dark, conservative place marked by an ident a religious identity, which also had an impact on how people lived. And here you have a young man basically saying the opposite. Look, Jerusalem was a place for, for parties. Yeah. Well, yes, Wasif was, uh, you know, since a young age, according to his memoirs, he, he loved music. And he learned music at the hands of a number of visiting musicians. He names some of them, some were local, but he even names uh, some famous musicians who came from Aleppo and other places. And he gradually became a well-known old player who played in a group. Uh, and, and the group had, uh, they were all Jerusalemites. Some of them were Christians, some were Jews, and some were Muslims. But they all played the kind of music that is the Arabi music that has the feeling of influence mostly by what was coming out of Egypt and by the traditions of the uh, great local music in, in greater Syria, particularly Aleppo, I would say, as a center of of more, uh, you know, it, we're not talking here about folkloric music. We're talking about, you know, uh, a more uh, uh, leisurely music, I suppose. Uh, so there's that element uh, of bringing, you know, that music brought everyone together, which is not what we see as, you know, uh, and any study about Ottoman Jerusalem will talk about, I don't know, 10% Christians of the population, 85% Muslims, 5% Jews, or, or the British mandate. There are fights among historians where the Jewish majority or Christian or Muslim majority, you know, that's all kind of uh, meaningless if you look at what it meant to be part of the city of Jerusalem. And uh, were these differences were not as significant as we think of them today after what happened in Palestine in, in, in mid 20th century on. And uh, so in some sense, that's kind of uh, extremely important. The other element I is, I mean, he, he was a man of uh, good sense of humor and seemed to be adventurous. And in his memoirs, he doesn't shy about telling intimate stories of um, through his musical scene of uh, you know uh, I don't know Ottoman officers drinking uh, parties. In fact, even he has a one page where he describes uh, during World War One the scene of the uh, sailors or not sailors maybe fishermen. I'm not sure. He uses the word sailors, but I think he means fishermen. Uh, from Jaffa, who were conscripted in the Ottoman army, who were uh, smoking hashish. And he even go, elaborates on the kinds of issues that they were facing. Of course, it's funny in itself. And, you know, to think of hashish and alcohol rather than, you know, uh, God, Jesus, Moses, uh, holy sites is one thing. But then even when he elaborates on these details, you get to learn, for example, what he considered the major problem that these hashish smokers faced is that uh, hashish, according to him, and I think this is his word, hashish requires sweets. And World War I and famine and sugar was scarce that these guys had to do with dates or something along these lines. I'm not sure if it was dates or dried figs. 
So in a way, you know, you could enjoy and laugh at the uh, scene he describes that relates to alcohol or drugs. But at the same time, you also learn a lot about the problems of the city. I mean, if the if this if lack of sugar was a problem for hashish smokers, imagine for uh, coffee or tea drinkers or for the makers of sweets in Jerusalem, baklava or knafe or any of that stuff. And, you know, it, it also takes you to the, uh, why was there no sugar? It takes you to the uh, naval blockade by the British of the Eastern Mediterranean, the war economy, you know, so it opens up. If, if you really want to look, you know, not just get stuck that, oh, he's talking about the people of Jaffa corrupting the morality of Jerusalem by bringing hashish, you know, you could do that. But but there's more to the story. It's, it's layers in some sense. Well, clearly he had a good grasp of uh, what, what was going on in Jerusalem because in 1917, when the British arrived under Ronald's tours, uh, one of the first things they did, or I must say he as governor of Jerusalem did, was in fact to close down a number of businesses and establishments uh, providing certain services from brothel to certain coffee shops exactly because in the view of the British, Jerusalem had to be a holy city and not a city for fun and entertainment like like anybody, like any other city, essentially. Uh, so I think really the, 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 the memoirs here are capturing that transition, which is also about our understanding of the city. Was yeah. it lived throughout the mandate era and at some point it became disillusioned with the British, and you can really feel it through the memoirs, how his views have changed from the liberators. Uh, so, you know, I guess from the perspective of someone who lived World War One in Palestine, in Jerusalem, suffering the consequences of a choice, of a choices made by the Ottomans, but then realizing that the British were bringing something different. How did this life change throughout the mandate? Well, as you said, it's, uh, you know, we have him uh, during World War I conscripted and eager to get out of the service, of course. And uh, the British come and uh, arrive in Jerusalem December 1917, and it's a, it's a great relief, you know, and it's the end of the age of tyranny. And so, and he articulates it that way in the memoirs. Uh, but then later on, uh, working with the British and seeing that the British mandate was bringing a uh, or kind of uh, bringing the Zionist project, which is a project that will change the identity of Palestine and the city, uh, more particularly in his case, the city of Jerusalem, and seeing the kinds of politics and ending up himself in 1948 after he uh, built a house in, in, in what became West Jerusalem, uh, leaving all that and ending up a refugee, uh, leaving West Jerusalem, not being able to return where his uh, house, his even his memoirs were left there and his photo albums and all that stuff. They were retrieved after 1967, by the way. So all that stuff, uh, and then he ends up first in Jericho and then eventually in Beirut. So, you know, of course, he, he felt that, you know, he did not articulate it that way at the end. He, but, but you could see that he basically, you know, from this uh, flirtatious 
character in a city that is a city in some sense, has the elements of the city into eventually being a refugee, a nobody in someone else's land. So you can see that tragedy. Uh, on, on the, uh, if I may go back a little bit to the Ronald stores and that period, you're absolutely right that the image of the city for the uh, colonial power of Britain is that of the holy city. And once it describes that struggle particularly, describes how, I recall a scene when the troops were stationed in front of the different religious establishment. In, in the case he mentions is the uh, Dome of the Rock and the Laksa Mosque. And the troops will not allow anyone in unless they were Muslims, because this is the place of worship. But before that, in the Ottoman period, apparently they used to go, uh, he and his friends, and just hang out in the gardens out there with their old, you know, enjoy. It was like a public place in the city, public space. And then how it was all changed and how you had to prove uh, you're a Muslim in order to enter a Muslim holy place or a Christian in order to enter a Christian holy place uh, or Jewish or what have you. But, uh, but of course, he tells it in his own way. I mean, he tells us that story, how he, the Christian, was able to get in because he looked in the eyes of the British troops Muslim, uh, while the blonde Muslim from, I think it was Nashashibi family, looked in the eyes of the troops, non-Muslim, so he was not allowed to enter. So it's also all these stereotypes and um, that. So, you know, in, in a sense, um, I thought I'll just mention this. Well, it's fascinating and it's obviously about uh, perception, right? So, uh, and I guess it's true even nowadays to think about maybe Muslims from the Balkans that may be, or, or from Russia, tall, blonde, blue eyes, and obviously they have a hard time to access, you know, in Al-Aqsa Mosque just to pray because obviously they don't look like how they should be in the eyes of uh, of Israeli police. Uh, yeah. Whereas, you know, you might be an Italian from the South, short and darker skin, but obviously Christian, but you may look like. So there's always this issue of a really orientalistic view and how people should look like in the eyes of uh, other people, in this case, uh, the British who, who uh, held control uh, of Palestine by then. Uh, Wasif had, uh, you know, lived in a very, very uh, harsh period of time for Jerusalem, where Jerusalem saw riots, massacres, rebellions, revolts, bombing. What is your understanding of how he negotiated all of these tragic events? How did he manage to go through uh, all of these, uh, uh, you know, period of time. So the early 20s, there may be rumors of riots, the, the, the revolt in Jaffa in 1929, the massacres, and then, of course, the Arab revolt, 36, 39, and then, of course, the bombings uh, by the hands of uh, Irgun, the Jewish terrorist organizations of the David uh, Hotel, King David Hotel, and then Ceramis Hotel, and so forth. Yeah. Well, uh, Wasif seemed to be always functioning within uh, the community of, of the friends and the artists and the culture makers and some politicians, uh, more than being 
directly uh, involved in talking about that kind of violence. Not that he doesn't mention it. He mentioned it, but but it's it's almost in passing, and you get the feeling, especially in the 1940s, which, by the way, is not included in the book, uh, in the English version, uh, because it's an abridged version. And but there he mentions the news as if he's uh, copying something from a newspaper. You know, uh, there is no personal touch, no personal connection, so to speak. But then where it's rich is when he talks about his family or his friends or his brother or, you know, whoever. In, in that sense, you get into, into the more intimate details. And you get the feeling somehow of the loss, especially after uh, 1948 and their departure from Jerusalem, you get a clear feeling about the loss over there, uh, not only because of how he talks about losing his home, but also how his community shrunk. So rather than talking about, I don't know, zillion names in the city and this place and that place, all of a sudden we are in the frontal uh, uh, monastery in, in Jericho, where, where his first place was with his family after uh, departing Jerusalem. So all of a sudden, the world shrinks, and uh, there isn't much, uh, you know, excitement or connection. So you, you feel, basically, I think that in some sense, if I have to, to stretch it somehow, the, the real meaning of the loss of Palestine for the Palestinians who went through what happened in 1948. Their world was changed upside down and everything familiar that they used to talk about is gone. And somehow you feel that with Wasif. But he has a lot less than anyone else I've read, so being Israeli or Palestinian or foreigner, in terms of this bombing or that bombing or what happened in this place, that's not uh, you know discussed in details anywhere. In passing, it is there, but not in details. It sounds like uh, as a Jerusalemite and Jerusalem being a harsh environment in many ways from a natural perspective, the hills, the lack of water, the lack of resources, the poor connection, but also the, the tension within the different communities or even within the same communities. It seems as he, he negotiated that the fact that there might have been incidents of outbreak of violence, which was some sort of a part of, of daily life. And yet, you know, still life could go on. And so uh, exactly. it was like uh, something to deal with, essentially. Yeah. I wonder whether this is a some sort of an orientalistic view or if it's part of Jerusalem. Well, I wouldn't call him Orientalist, of course, but I think he uh, belonged to a some sort of social class where he uh, his connection. I mean, of course, he suffered as as any other Jerusalemite, and he suffered as a Palestinian in 1948, losing his home and all that stuff. But uh, I think he he functioned within certain uh, social class somehow. He was part of the middle class that was proud to have connections with uh, sort of the elite families or notables of Jerusalem, Husseinis or Nashishibis or others, or, or before that with the 
uh, Ottoman leaders, Jamal Pasha or others who visited the city, or uh, during the British mandate, some of the British uh, rulers or officers at the time. So he paid uh, much less attention, like, you know, except for the Ottoman period, and only in relationship to the feudal landlord, the mayor of Jerusalem, the villages uh, enter into the picture. Uh, most of the time, this is a, a, a memoir of a middle class aspiring to be uh, more of a upper class, I suppose. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating here, but it is really, you know, the, the uh, peasantry that are, is an important element of, of daily, daily life in Jerusalem, peasants coming to the city, are not there. And there are those, although he resents the British and resented the Ottomans, but he dwells on his relationship with them somehow. So I wouldn't call it Orientalist in that sense, more of a class issue. Of, of lacking in a class awareness that brings him closer to the, to the working class or to the poor or the peasantry in that sense. Just one last question about Wasif. Um, so in 1948, he was displaced, uprooted from, from East Jerusalem. And uh, that is an experience shared by uh, Muslims, Christian, Jews, if you want to look at uh, religious identities, but by many people who were Jerusalemites by generations, centuries at times, even probably even earlier. And you, you get a sense that the Jerusalem he was talking about in 1920 was gone. So this is a memoir. And I was wondering if you wrote, if you think that he wrote this with a sense of nostalgia, or in fact, he was just really trying to revive his own life and what Jerusalem looked like and what even might have been in the future or what it may be one day in the future. God knows. I want to be optimistic. Well, uh, you're right about uh, your description. Uh, this is a uh, uh, Jerusalem that was completely lost, that he gives us, presents us. Uh, but I don't think he wrote uh, because of some sort of nostalgia or, or, or vision of the future, because this is a mixture of a diary and sometimes memoirs. And although the final product in his handwriting was written in Beirut in late 60s, early 70s before his death, the style of writing implies that he was actually copying uh, a diary or diaries uh, or notebooks that he had before. Because when he describes a place, he says, this is, uh, I, you know, he, he talks as, as if he was there at that moment. And sometimes he even makes references that this place was changed and now it's the store of so-and-so. And that store of so-and-so is could be uh, the situation in 1930, but not in 1967. So he basically was uh, reorganizing, I, I would say, uh, lots of uh, notes that he wrote from before. It's closer to a diary. It is a diary with sometimes uh, some reflections and memoirs, but it, it tends to be largely a diary in that sense. Uh, so I wouldn't... Uh, you know, in the sense of loss of that Jerusalem, yes, the reader will feel that. I do feel that. But I don't think 
he wrote it because he wants to revive that sense of loss. He probably wrote it because he uh, likes to write. His father used to write his uh, diary. This is a tradition in the family. Uh, that's one. And the second thing, because he felt he was a special person who had uh, interesting lives, not just life. And he, uh, you know, wrote about his the wonders he saw in his life. And in some sense, what makes the diary interesting is this sense of, you know, I mean, I would say with all due respect to, to Wasif, that he was more or less a nobody, but through his memoirs, he appears to be a witness to all the great events, according to him. And therefore he is, it's like, you know, when uh, you read in the paper that there was the, the prime minister so-and-so visited the place and he was in the company of others. So Wasif is the others in this sense. You don't really know if he really was there or not, but he talks as if he was there and as if he knew every important figure in the city. So, you know, I don't want to be unfair to him, but which is... but. Uh, Maybe he just inserted himself into the history and made himself a lot bigger than what he really was, which is okay. I mean, you know, memoirs, you could do that. You do, you know, in fiction, you do that. It's fine in some sense, but I wouldn't take it uh, for sure. We have no proof of, of all sort of details that he mentions in which he was witnessed uh, to witness to, I don't know, grand events. But they were known in the city, and he's the only one, or one of the few, who actually wrote uh, what was happening on that day. And through writing, he placed himself in the middle of the picture. He becomes, in a sense, an important element now of the memory of Jerusalem, British and Ottoman Jerusalem, in that sense. You edited the Arabic version, the English version, the way you talk about Wasif, suggest that you're some sort of friend with him. Do you feel a personal attachment to Wasif? As a matter of fact, I do. I be became, you know, I worked on this along with my colleague Salim uh, Tamari uh, for a very, very long time. This is a project that probably started, I cannot be certain of the year, but let's say maybe 1999 or 98 or and uh, continues to this date. So this is two decades uh, in which I've known his daughter, his grandchildren. I've met uh, or communicated with his son, the late son now who's dead, uh, the grandson, uh, other people who knew him. So somehow, uh, you know, and then I saw his photo albums. In fact, in a new book that is due to come out sometime this year from the California University Press is on the photo albums of uh, uh, Wasif. And it's by me and Salim Tamari and Stephen Sheehy. And uh, so I saw that and we managed to get a recording with his voice. So all these things all of a sudden, and you know, I've walked into the footsteps of Wasif, along with my colleague Salim. We identify which house where he was. We went to the cafe where he used to go, and uh, we went to the various areas in West Jerusalem where his house was. So somehow, 
I feel like I am. I became a Johariya in some sense or another. Maybe I. Uh, I don't know. He. Yeah. I. I. I feel we're we're really good friends. That I gave myself the right earlier to say maybe he's not telling the whole truth, as if I knew him well. But I feel I we became almost uh, intimate in an innocent sense, of course. Uh, uh, in 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 our no, in my knowledge of him at least, of course he never heard of me, but I lived through his uh, writing, and uh, now I know his family. And I, uh, in fact, there's also the, his musical notebook and the song, the songs he sang. So one became kind of uh, I, I knew him in various ways, you know, by talking to musicians who knew him, or by talking to family, or or people involved in politics. So yes. I think I think so. One last question, and I want to just go back to the beginning. Throughout the interview, we talked about buildings, places, historical events, sounds, smells, pictures. If you were to name two places of Jerusalem that you are associated with, two of your favorite spots, what they would be? Two places. Well, I would say in terms of uh, smells and, uh, you know, like I feel I'm truly in, in, in Jerusalem is in the old city when I go through Damascus Gate, through Khan Zayt and into the spice market. Uh, that is always the world where all these smells like bombard you. This is uh, one thing. In terms of uh, personal growing up and experience, uh, I, you know, in, in, in my time, the Salah al-Din street outside of Jerusalem was a place I was more connected to. And my father and uncle had a shop there that I used to work in the summer there. And then, uh, you know, got to beat friends. And then when the Hakawati theater at the end of that street was opened up in the early 80s, you know, became a place to hang out and to go meet other people. So somehow there's that strip that starts from the beginning of Salah al-Din perhaps and ends by the American colony or Sheikh Jarrah that became part of my uh, elder uh, times as, as a young man or a, or a man in Jerusalem uh, in terms of socially. But in terms of that, that feeling uh, in, in the old city is, is very special. Though, it, you know, I cannot say it reminds me of a particular event or connected with a daily activity, but it is, the, the I don't know, it enriches me somehow just to go through that road. This was Issam Nassar. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roberto. Appreciate it. Until my next podcast, thank you for listening. And remember, enjoy, share, subscribe. Thank you. 